Welcome to Game & Watch, the show where we talk about games we've been gaming and movies and TV shows we've been watching. I'm Aaron. And I'm James. And today we are talking about Psycho, the 1960 thriller directed by the legendary Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, and this might be the oldest movie we've ever done. I believe it is now. Now yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah, um, so why don't you tell tell me a little bit about your history with Psycho? So I've always been aware of it. Right. I mean, Psycho is in if you like horror movies, you've heard of Psycho and you're probably more than just aware of it. You probably knew how this movie ended or you knew the spoilers before you saw the movie. And if you didn't, I envy you because I certainly knew everything before I saw this movie for the first time. I feel like this movie, a lot of people kind of absorb through like cultural osmosis without necessarily having seen it. Yeah, I would say like our generation, I, I would not I would not be the least bit surprised if the majority of our generation was unable to go into this movie spoiler free. And I kind of held off on watching it for a while. I think I saw it for the first time in college. I was aware of it well before then. And kind of like, you know, I feel like I was I thought I was too cool in like high school to like go back and rewatch this movie despite it being a classic and despite my getting into like horror movies and movies in general. Because it was an older older movie, right? And 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 there were a lot of older movies that I kind of shunned. Some I, some I didn't um, growing up, but others that I was just kind of like, yeah, it's an old movie. Um, who cares? Right. And it was around this time, the same time, I forgot which I saw first, but I saw North by Northwest. I think that might have been the first Hitchcock movie I'd ever seen. I Yeah, maybe. Either way, I adored North by Northwest. Absolutely loved it. And I think that I thought that was going to kind of be the gateway into getting me like this and that and psycho getting me into Hitchcock. And I'm actually embarrassed to say I've probably only seen about maybe five or six Hitchcock films. And he's done so many and there's so many classics. And don't be be embarrassed because that's about where I am as well. Well, I mean, maybe we should both be embarrassed. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it's and and what's what's what was amazing about it then is it did not diminish the impact of the movie whatsoever to know everything, which is such a testament to this movie. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I think this movie is just remarkable. It's great. It really is. And so if you were hoping to hear us just like unleash holy hell on it, it's not going to happen. It is a classic for a reason. It's just, it's so great to watch movies that are just widely regarded as being masterpieces. And even if you go into them skeptical to come out believing it, well, and I think this movie actually in some ways benefits from you knowing the ending because you see so many clues and hints towards it that if this was completely fresh to you, you would probably miss and you'd probably have to watch the movie a second time anyway to catch them all. Without a doubt. And I, another thing I love about this, and it's like, so I should probably say that I don't think I had actually seen this since college. I, I saw it and I was kind of like, that was great. I've done my Duty is a lover of film. I saw this movie and I'm good. Not like that's not to to negate any of like the 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 impact the movie had on me. It's just I was like I don't need to see it again. And so it was it was, it was awesome to revisit this. And I, I thought it was just as good, if not better, than the first time I saw it. And it just was a reminder to me of those types of films w- that exist in the zeitgeist, whether or not people realize it or not. I am sure there are plenty of people, and I'm not going to knock Gen Z. I mean, I could knock some of our own generation, too, who have seen so many references to this movie without actually knowing what the hell it's from. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is especially like some of the Marion Crane stuff, like I mean, the shower scene obviously has just been God, like lampooned and and recreated and like in so many different ways throughout the, you know, like 70 years, 70 plus years since this movie came out. It's 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 incredible the kind of impact that this had. And this was one of those movies, one of my first thoughts coming out of watching it again was, man, I wish I could go back in time and see this knowing nothing about the book or anything like that. Same. Also, I like reading about the kind of uh, impassioned secretivity or secretiveness yeah. that Hitchcock had surrounding the movie. I would have loved to be in one of the original screenings where they like didn't let people leave and, uh, you know, all the crazy. There was so much secrecy that we'll talk about it in development. But Hitchcock went out and tried to buy up all the copies of the book Psycho. So no one knew the ending. That, um, like nice. imagine being in that atmosphere and seeing it for the first time. Yeah, this kind of I don't know if it was exactly around the same time, but there was kind of like a change in filmmaking around this time where like there were maybe more gratuitous things being shown on screen. And um, Bonnie and Clyde, the Warren Beatty film comes to mind as well as kind of like increasing the level of violence that was depicted on film. And I think I we obviously are so desensitized to this. We're like we like stroll into Midsommar and stroll yeah. out like it's just a regular ass day. Well, so we that, okay, that's not quite true. <laughs> well, maybe we just, like maybe we stroll out of like Mission Impossible like an ordinary day, and like sure. the body the body count of Mission Impossible films is pretty high. Sure, but I still think that like our reaction to some of the extremities uh, of <laughs> Midsommar don't match up to the kinds of like visceral reactions people were having to the horrors of this film. True. I'm, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic, but I no, wasn't alive I in 1960, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. What's what's your arc with this? So um, I was aware of Psycho through obviously like references and things like that in pop culture. Like uh, in particular, I think my first reference to it was the episode of The Simpsons where Marge is arrested yep. for shoplifting. Yep. yep. And uh, Maude Flanders looks at her in the psycho shot through the, <laughs> the hole. <laughs> um, but then also I was aware of it because of the shot for shot remake by Gus Van Sant. Um, that has widely been regarded as like the most needless movie ever made. Um, and that got me like aware of it again. And I have an aunt who has seen probably every black and white movie ever. And I remember like watching bits of Psycho like at her house when she was watching it. And I remember only seeing certain parts and not understanding why people thought it was a scary movie. And I particularly remember the scene in the parlor with Marion and Norman and I remember thinking like, oh, this is where the movie is scary. And I was scared of it, but not for the reasons that you would think. I was scared of it for the taxidermy birds, for the shadows, for like kind of the angles. Um, and that freaked me out enough to like not keep watching it. So yeah. I didn't even see the shower scene as a little kid, but I knew about it and I knew how the movie ended, things like that. So eventually, like you in college, I went back and I rewatched it and I fell in love with it. I love the whole thing. Um, we'll get to my like final sum up thoughts at the end because I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it's a great movie. Um, and it just became a movie that I probably watch like once a year, once every two years. Um, so I've seen Psycho probably like five, six, probably seven times now. Watching oh, nice. Show. 
Um, and I love it every time. And there's like little things I notice every time. And I was happy that this time um, I had new questions and new things that I noticed, um, kind of analyzing the film in a way I have not before. So um, yeah, my history with this film is rich and I love it. Uh, spoiler alert to my thoughts. Um, but yeah, yeah th this is a movie that um, I, I have a lot of passion for. Do you like it more or less than Rosemary's Baby? Um, I like it less, um, probably because Rosemary's Baby is like my go to Halloween movie. But yeah. if it wasn't Rosemary's Baby, it would probably be Psycho. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Plus, Rosemary's Baby is fucked up. Like well, more than this. Yeah, that's definitely Rosemary's Baby also features like a very close familial relationship, like husband and wife instead of mother and son. Yeah, that is really dysfunctional and fucked up. Yeah. As you find out. But yeah, yeah um shall we talk about how we got here yeah so speaking of north by northwest that was the movie that he made before this which was a very like big scale kind of like adventure thriller yeah. uh with a big budget was shot in color just like it had some you know i think Cary grant i think it was yeah Cary grant attached to it like i mean it, it was it was huge well, and, and we should point out that most films in 1960 were being released in color. So Psycho yes. was kind of an exception at the time. And as somebody who didn't really appreciate like the timing of film, like as, as I was hearing about this movie, I definitely thought this movie was older than it was. Yeah. And I didn't really appreciate the idea of like creating a movie in black and white, uh, even though, you know, color existed. Like a lot of people had kind of moved on. And it was seen yeah. as like a step backwards. But right now, like watching it as it exists, I can't really imagine it um, in color. I think that would take a lot away from it. Absolutely. And like the Gus Van Sant. So I also kind of had the reputation, of the Gus Van Sant shot for shot remake, or it was they had a reputation of being a shot for shot, but also just kind of really lacking. But then I read more into it. I never actually fully saw the entire thing, but I hear it wasn't actually shot for shot because Gus Van Sant Sand could not figure out how Alfred Hitch Alfred Hitchcock did some of these shots and how he blocked some of these scenes. And so he just kind of like gave up on that, like halfway through or something. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that. I, I I was in the camp of people thinking that it was, in fact, like shot for shot. I mean, I've, I haven't watched them side by side. I haven't seen the other one in full and I'm not going to. So no. I guess I, I this is just what I've heard. And so but yeah. Paramount Pictures, uh, not enthusiastic about making the movie, despite how passionate Hitchcock was for it. And I I don't know. If, but I mean, it's Paramount's the studio, right? Like you must have known they must have known the entire movie by that point. They, right? It's not like he was keeping the ending from them. No, they did. And I think that's probably why they were not enthusiastic about it, because this is like a fucking weird movie. Uh, the more you think about it, when you think about some of Hitchcock's other thrillers, they're surprising and they're they're classics for a reason, right? They're surprising and they're really well done. Um, yeah. And the dialogue is really snappy and great. Um, but they're more standard than this. This is a very non-standard film for reasons we'll get into. Like characters die like in the middle of it. And the twist at the end was like kind of nothing anyone had ever seen before. Yeah. And it was in black and white at a time when a lot of movies were coming out in color. So I think Paramount was kind of right to be skeptical, but obviously the results uh, speak for themselves. Yeah. I want uh, a little tiny corner on how this movie compares to the kind of classic three act structure. I mean, it has a three, the, the like a three act structure, but the amount of time spent per act 
is vastly different than a lot of films, especially around this time. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, fi- well, I guess we'll try. I don't know if we should talk about that at the very, very end, or I could, I don't know when I should talk about it, but I do want to talk about that. So I'm just setting a reminder for you and for myself because it, it's kind of fascinating. Hey, Alexa, remind James <laughs> to do that thing later. Do you, do you have one? Do you have an no, Alexa? No, oh, I okay. do not have one. Okay. Um, yeah. So, in sharp contrast to North by Northwest, this movie was much lower budget, had a much smaller crew, and was, like we said, in black and white. And I mean, kind of crazy to think about it. I don't know if people were like as the Internet wasn't around. And so people probably weren't as like there wasn't a widespread knowledge about film for a long time. But like if I imagine this now thinking about somebody who's made like a blockbuster and off a huge budget and then hearing about their next project, knowing that it's going to be super low budget, I'd get super excited about that. But I don't think people knew anything at this time. No, I don't think there was widespread information about like kind of the the mechanics of how the movie was made at this time, unless you were like deeply into film or probably in the film industry. Yeah. 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 Um, he used the crew and other assets from his own show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, to keep costs down, uh, which is smart. Have you seen Alfred Hitchcock Presents? No, I haven't. I mean, I'm familiar with like kind of like the visual I don't know, the credits or the, the, dum, dum, the song. Dum, dum, yeah. Dum, dum. yeah. Yeah. Um, I've seen a few episodes and I would recommend just Googling like the best. What I did was like the best Alfred Hitchcock presents episodes. And I watched like three or four of them. Okay. Um, and they were all actually really good. Very well done. Um, like in a great noir black and white style. I mean, it's Alfred Hitchcock. So like, yeah. Um, and Hitchcock actually financed a lot of the movie himself. We'll talk about the budget in a bit, but um, he was financially kind of tied to this. Hmm. Yeah, I did not know that. Um, this was adapted from a horror novel by Robert Block, who I've never heard of, and I don't know if he's released any other books. Yeah, I haven't heard of him either. But um, his story was loosely inspired by uh, the famous Wisconsin murderer and grave robber Ed Gein. Is that your favorite serial killer? No, he actually wasn't a serial killer. He only killed twice. Oh, you're you're right. You're right. I yeah. forget that's that's the common misconception. It is. He was much more of a grave robber. And part of uh Ed Gein's deal was that he wanted to create a woman suit out of the body parts of deceased uh, women. Yes. Is he um, your favorite grave robber or is Dr. Frankenstein your favorite grave robber? Oh, Ed Gein for sure. Okay. Um, but each had deceased domineering mothers um, and had a sealed off room in their home that was a shrine to them and dressed in women's clothes. Um, so spoiler, at some point we'll see Norman Bates dressed in women's clothes. Well, we're going to, I mean, I, we should... People aren't listening to this because they want to like see if they should watch Psycho. Like you, you know the spoiler by this point, and I'm, we're going to be talking about it in advance. Probably we're not. It's not. It's not going to be a reveal. There's yeah. multiple like climate, like incredible events, uh, and yeah, we you know everyone knows. Everyone knows what everyone what, knows what happens. Everyone knows what's point. coming. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock rec- acquired the rights to the novel for ninety five hundred dollars. Um, and ordered the studio uh, to buy up all the copies to preserve the novel surprises. I like that move. Yeah. Hitchcock and Stefano. Um, Stefano is the screenwriter, um, found the character of Norman Bates unsympathetic. So in the book, he's middle-aged, overweight, and more overtly unstable. Um, but they both became much more intrigued when Hitchcock suggested casting Anthony Perkins, who is 
perfect in this perfect. role. I, I, I cannot imagine. Oh my god! Get, get out of here, yeah. Vince Vaughn. You're not. You're not. No, Anthony Perkins is outstanding in this role. Outstanding. His little, his little ticks, his little looks he gives. How just kid. handsome he is. How handsome he is, his like tight little smiles at yes. certain things. Um, he's he's incredible. You just want to take him home to mother. Well, yes. <laughs> or he, you want to let him take. He's you charming home to his in a way. He is until until the seams start to show. Until he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this I found interesting. Nearly the whole film was shot on fifty millimeter lenses on thirty five millimeter cameras. So this provided an angle of view similar to human vision, which helped to further involve the audience. Hmm. Um, I didn't did you know, know that either. No, I did not. Yeah. Um, another thing that I didn't realize until I looked into it for this episode is that Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh were given a lot of freedom to interpret their roles and improvise. However, it could not involve them moving the camera. Hmm. Um, so an example is Norman eating candy corn. Um, that was Perkins idea for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, and maybe it's tied. We'll talk about it, but it, Norman has this like increasingly cavalier attitude as the movie goes on. And I kind of wonder if that was Perkins or that was Hitchcock. Okay. Um, hmm. and then just a fun little note, um, Anthony Perkins made for this movie $40,000, uh, which is the amount that gets tossed around and the amount that is stolen in the film. <laughs> I love it. I wonder, um, well, no, that couldn't have. Well, I don't know. What came first? Did they change the number in the film to match what they were going to pay him? Or was that just coincidence? Or I don't know. Probably just a coincidence. I think it's just an interesting coincidence. So the the score of this film was done by Bernard Herman, who is famous for doing North by Northwest, Taxi Driver, The Birds, Vertigo, like other Hitchcock films, um, in addition to Taxi Driver. Also, if you're familiar with, um, well, I, I'm not going to say people are going to be familiar with the film Twisted Nerve, because I wasn't until... The, the song was used in Kill Bill, but he wrote the, the theme song to Twisted Nerve. Do you do you, are you familiar with that song? Uh perhaps if the I film. Yeah, with like the whistling and stuff. Um, but I've never actually, yeah, I've never actually seen the film. Apologies for my singing. No, I listen, I understood exactly <laughs> what you were talking about. So Initially, the reception of the movie was mixed. And I think that was really that was short lived because I think it was very like immediately critically like reevaluated. And, well, I but, think I think maybe the reason is and I, I don't know, I'm kind of spitballing, but I wonder if because the film and its release was kind of gimmicky. I wonder if people were like, uh, I don't know, is this a gimmick or is this actually a good film? Yeah, right. Right. Um, It was a huge box office success. $50 million off an 800K budget. Which is was, like more than 50 times a return. Yeah. It was nominated for four Oscars. Best Director, Best Sporting Actress for Janet Lee, Art Direction, and Cinematography. So two comments on that. One, absolutely shocked Anthony Perkins wasn't nominated. But maybe, I mean, the Oscars have never really nominated horror films. So the fact that it got these four, pretty incredible. Well, and especially considering Lee, like, isn't actually in the movie all that much. Yeah. So, well, she is. She is, though. Like, an hour yeah, of the movie. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's supporting, I su supporting actors. And, and that's the thing. So, I, I actually, like, I timed some of this stuff. And I'll talk more about this when I get into the 3X structure. Because I was, like, so fascinated with this as I was watching it that I, I actually, like, rewatched entire sections because I wanted to make sure I got the timing right. Um, My, my quick comments about Janet Lee. 
She is excellent. Deserving of the Best Sporting Actress nomination. I have like a small criticism, and it's not, I don't think it's of her performance. Maybe it was the direction, maybe it's of the of the time. But this movie, I think, does a good job of having like the most important scenes not have that kind of old old timey movie speak like that you know you know you know what i'm talking about i do like it's like the the like it's such a a thing of the time and this movie doesn't have that except sometimes she doesn't do it like that she doesn't do that like like like, you know the the um the car salesman talks like that you know like there's this very sheriff kind of talks like that yeah she doesn't talk like that but she does We'll get into she is so fucking suspicious and not in a natural way. It is a there are times where I feel like I see the acting too much from her. But other times I don't like the scenes with her and Norman. Excellent. When she is on the run, when she's with the policeman and when she's. Oh, my God. the, The car salesman. I don't want to call, I don't know if I want to call it overacting or just acting. Like you can see the acting. Yeah. I also, I also think it's a victim of the dialogue a little bit. um, Cause she does get, she does get written some pretty suspicious dialogue. Yeah. there, And then that's the kind of thing that a lot of these older films have is there's like kind of like sing songy, like cadence to a lot of the dialogue, or at least the way that it's delivered. And again, very much of the time, this movie mostly doesn't do that in the key scenes, but she does do it a little bit. And it, yeah. it's weird. It like takes me out of the movie kind of, but the just the construction of the film pulls me back in. Yeah, and I, I think you're right in that the scenes with her and Norman, she and Anthony Perkins are kind of unassailable. Like yeah. they're just flawless. In yeah. Scenes. So, so this this film has been like analyzed and reanalyzed to death. We're not going to really do that here, but I do want to just at least very briefly touch on some of like the, the theories and the commentary, the thematic elements, some of the motifs that are really evident or like that stood out to me this time. We did not, we are not film scholars. We did not go back and just dissect this movie. I was not actually taught this when I, in the film film class I took, I was taught North by Northwest, which was, awesome but i mean so there are uh, let's start with motifs actually so there's a lot of like mirrors and reflections here and for anyone who knows the twist like that is clearly like a comment on duality and i think for marion it's almost like uh, a comment on her guilt right yes can she look at herself in a mirror right uh there exist the motifs of like water and rain i mean it's not that recurring but it's very much like a bad omen uh, yes. signifies something bad about to happen my favorite motif is birds in this film not birds Absolutely. in general but in this film my favorite motif yeah i i hate birds in real life but birds in this film i love uh um, tell yeah. us what birds might mean so well uh bird is an english slang for women yes there are stuffed birds so quite like norman is a taxidermist as is like hobby or whatever um stuffed birds killed women you know yeah, there you go. Things everywhere. The fact that his mother is quite literally like a made up, uh, pretty like dead woman, like yeah. a taxidermy bird. Uh, Marion Crane from yes. Phoenix, Phoenix 
Arizona. Any any other bird references? There might have been more. Those are just the ones I caught. There probably are. Um, I probably didn't catch them all either, but yeah. uh, birds everywhere. Birds yeah. aplenty. Love it. Um, so, you know, there. I've heard like other things about sh- the use of shadows in this film. I, I wasn't paying too close of attention to it, so I can't comment on it. But um, but great. I mean, I don't know the symbolism of it, but great use of shadows. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I I, I wrote this as if it was like a, a definite thing. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he was ever interviewed on it, but it has been kind of like said that Hitchcock is commenting on the perversions, voyeurism and sexual aggression of men, which is kind of like making intended to make the male viewer uncomfortable but also kind of make us the male viewer like the rapist of janet lee and marion crane yeah even though technically she is not raped she is only murdered but it's done in a very sexualized way and like there's obvious penetration metaphors yes um but yeah it's interesting like i don't think you could do a you know rape in 1960 on screen um but there's definitely that unsettling undertone yeah, very much so. And I I mean, one of the best elements of this movie is and maybe this is a good segue into the three my three act structure thing that I want to talk about is that like th- there's a bait and switch. Um, the, you know, audience is not familiar with the book, which we could assume is like most people. They don't know what they're getting into. And so much like the movie starts out for the first hour. I mean, it really commits like it plays out like this tense romantic thriller of a woman on the run. And the fact that it turns into like this horror where, where Marion is killed like an hour into the movie, the person you think is the main character, like what other movie did that back in the day? Like anything? Probably not. No. And I think the only hint that you would get that something sinister is coming is the fact that the movie is called <clears throat> psycho because yeah. nothing in the first hour really gives you a hint that there is a psycho about right until, you know, certain things happen. Right. So, okay, let, let, let's, let me, let me, I won't, I won't do this for too long, but so the, like a classic three act structure of a film. And again, this isn't like so many films don't follow this, but I think the ways that this one doesn't are pretty fascinating. And a lot of films do follow this. The classic three act structure of a film is a roughly where the act, well, the first act of the film covers about 25% of the story. The second act is maybe about 50%, the next 50%. And the third act up to the end covers the like remaining 25%. Marion yeah, Cr- that that makes sense. Yeah. So this film is 1 hour and 50 minutes uh, roughly 1 hour and 50 minutes. Marion dies at almost the 50 minute mark of the film. That is not quite the end of act 1 though because there was another 10 minutes and I'll talk about more of this more about that when we get to it. There are about 10 minutes of Norman discovering the body and covering up for his mother. That's still act 1. So 50 minutes, 10 minutes, act one ends with her murder and Norman cleaning, clearing it, uh, cleaning it up. And that takes over 50% of the story. That's one hour. Act one is one hour, which kind of go back, going back to what we just said earlier about like the bait and switch thing is like, not only is it a longer first act than usual, it's like, we don't, you're almost, it's almost like the first act is like her on the run. And the second act is going to begin when she arrives at Bates Motel, but that's not, that's, it's all act one. I almost wonder, have you looked at this under a five-act structure? No, I haven't. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not actually sure how I would have divided it. But maybe, like, to maybe a four-act, like, with her just on the run 
like her getting to the Bates Motel is like act two and everything that happens with her at the motel is act two. Yeah. yeah. And then act three. So act two is the Arbogast stuff. And act two ends with the murder of Arbogast, which happens close to the one hour and 20 minute mark. But if act two doesn't begin to the one hour mark, act two is like 20 minutes long. Yeah. And then act three is the remaining 30 minutes. So act one is the longest by far. Acts two and three are kind of close to the same. Each act is about a different character. The fact that act one is the longest part is kind of incredible. And it is it one of the best first acts in movie history? I, I, we're not prepared to answer that question. I just want to propose it as kind of uh, like a, an open-ended question. Yeah, it's up there. So I, I just thought that was like incredibly fascinating. I because I like when when and it was prompted by me getting to like the, her being dead. And I was I was obviously so engrossed in the movie I wasn't paying attention how much time had passed. And I when she died and he cleaned up the body. I was like, how much time is left? And it's like, Oh my God, that's an, this is an hour into the movie. It's kind of, kind of remarkable. So and anyway. it takes his sweet time or rather Hitchcock takes a sweet time to show us every step of the evidence being gotten rid of. And it's like, I don't think we needed to see all that, but I actually disagree. And I'll explain why when we get to it. Okay. Yeah. I, that was uh, my first reaction as well. And then I completely changed my tune on it. Okay. I would love to hear, um, hear why when we get to it all right uh but why don't we start at the beginning which is generally a good place to start yes yeah um so we open on the city of phoenix as we mentioned before um there's this little um i don't even know what you would call it uh like they label that we're in phoenix arizona that it's friday december the 11th and specifically what time it is um they never do this again in the film i don't know why they do it I have no idea why it's it's kind of a tiny nitpick, but it is one of my nitpicks. Okay. Um, so a man named Sam and a woman named Marion, uh, they've taken their lunch breaks to have kind of a quickie in this cheap hotel room. Um, Marion isn't happy that they have to meet like this. She wants to be married. She's really in love with Sam and Sam only visits on business when he's in town. Um, so they clearly have to kind of like sneak around with their relationship, but I don't fully understand why. And there's another 1950s, 60s thing later that I don't really get the logic of. Okay. Um, so it's mentioned that Sam is divorced and that he has to pay alimony. And it's mentioned that he also has other debts and kind of a general lack of money. So I get why he wouldn't want to marry her if he doesn't really have money. But like, why do they have to sneak around like this? What do you think? Um, I don't know. And it's one of my nitpicks that like, I feel like they could have done a better job. I get that this is probably how the novel was, but I like, can you do a better job explaining why she'd want this money? Like, I wish they would have done like an angle of like her sisters in dire need, like, and like I like, hospitalized or something or like, yeah. it, like has like a, an illness or like needs like some sort of money for something to avoid like her house being like taken, you know? this is it's an odd the whole stuff with sam is odd yeah it's a little weird um but sam eventually promises that he will take her out respectably um so they kind of go their separate ways he goes back to his town and she goes back to the office um marion's co-worker so marion says she has a headache um and marion's oh one quick thing uh before we move on uh, yeah. so when we get the opening uh we see marion in a bra um do you know was this like common to have been seen in 1960 or was this also controversial i don't know that's a good question 
I would think maybe it was by 1960, but I don't know. That's a good, that's a really good question. I I don't know. I'm going to say yes. Yeah, probably. I mean, this movie pushed a lot of boundaries in different ways. So yeah. Um, anything else to say about Sam and Marion in this first part? Yeah. I mean, no, not really. Okay. So back at the office, uh, Marion has a headache and her coworker offers her. I love this. Um, the tranquilizer she took on her <laughs> wedding day. Um, that's like the most 1950s thing I've ever heard. Like you're a little <laughs> nervous here, honey, have some tranquilizer. <laughs> I think didn't people just like mainline horse tranquilizers back then. Or Probably Coca-Cola had cocaine in it like way back in the day. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, so Marion's boss and this like tycoon cartoon oil man who honestly reminds me of like the rich Texan and the Simpsons a little bit. Um, <laughs> right. Doesn't he? Yeah um he they come in ready to complete this sale slash transaction they have um he's again like very larger than life and again like this movie isn't perfect and i do think this character kind of stands out because he's so like extra compared to anyone else in the movie um what i mean what do you think about him well i just thought just now maybe i mean mean, hitchcock was an alleged genius like was it intentional to have this movie be very similar to others of the time and have some of these larger than life characters and some of these almost like overacting dialogue scenes to 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 misdirect the audience like yeah further bait and switch you yeah yeah maybe yeah it's possible but i you know he is a little extra yeah um, so he creeps on Marion. Uh, he's talking about his daughter's wedding and that the, all this money is to buy her a house as a gift. Nothing woos a younger woman like talking about your own daughter's wedding. Yeah, absolutely. And your 18-year-old daughter, so a little young. <laughs> yeah. But then again, it was the 50s. Uh, so he tells Marion that he buys off unhappiness um, and that $40,000, which is the amount of money for this house, uh, is not enough money to buy happiness, but enough to buy away unhappiness. Hmm. Um, so Marion in her head, the gears are turning. This money may be able to buy off the unhappiness that Sam is going through and by extension her. I don't I also don't entirely buy this like immediate leap to how I'll steal some money. I like I, I'm not quite like this is an, another one of the weaknesses of the movie, but it's so overshadowed by the strengths that it's, it's such a minor thing to me. Yeah. It's almost like I don't care what gets her on the run. I'm just everything when she's on the run works for me, even when she's acting sus as fuck. <laughs> well, yeah, she is acting sus as fuck. But I think part of it, too, is uh, when I was doing research, the screenplay is extremely close to the novel, minus the tweaks they make with Norman's character and a few other things. Hmm. But I, I wonder if in the novel, because, you know, I'm sure they go into Marion's mind and her headspace. I wonder if it makes it a lot clearer in the novel why she would take the money, whereas because film is a different medium and you can't really see in their head. Maybe it's a little less clear, hmm. but that's just pure speculation. Um, So because of the size of the transaction and it being all in cash, Marion's boss is really nervous. He doesn't want to keep it in the office. And he wants the money stored somewhere safely for the weekend. So he tells Marion to bring it to the bank. And she has to go home after the bank because of her headache. So we next cut to Marion at home packing a bag. Uh, And again, if you're seeing this movie for the first time, you're like, what is she doing? She was supposed to go to the bank. 
Uh, we see her eyeing the money as she's packing. So Marianne starts driving out of town and she has this, we get this little scene where she's imagining what Sam will say when she surprises him. Like, oh, what are you doing here? What's going on? This is a voiceover. It's a voiceover. Right? Yeah. yeah it's the first time that this, that voiceover is used. Yes. Um, however, as she's driving out of town, she happens to see the oil man and her boss crossing the street. Um, her boss kind of eyes her and sees her and gives her a, you know, a shitty look. Yeah. Um, because after all, she was supposed to be sick at home. This is when the tension kind of begins and doesn't really let up until the end of the first act. Yes. Um, something cool that I noticed is uh, as Marion's driving away from the city, we get this shot of her driving on a lonely highway kind of yeah. covered in shadows. Yeah. And I don't think for the time this was meant to be as creepy as I find it now. I think it's just because that's kind of how all highways were back before there was like a really standardized international highway system. Yeah. Um, it just looks kind of lonely and creepy. And I, I just I kind of love it as a shot of her driving away into this kind Me of too. wilderness a little bit. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So we cut to like the daytime and, and Marion is now sleeping in her car on the side of the road. And this cop pulls up and checks on her. Uh, she which. I was just going to say, which again, like back in the day, that's what you would have to do. I suppose, right? I mean, unless you could find a motel. If you couldn't, I mean, you would literally just have to sleep on the side of the road. I mean, couldn't you argue that's the same way it is now? What do you do? What would you do now if you can't find a hotel? Or a well, motel? people don't sleep now. Oh, yeah, you're right. We, we gave up sleeping in the 80s. No <laughs> that's one That's true. That's true. When yeah. cocaine was on the rise. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. <laughs> so she she mentioned she didn't really like attempt to sleep all night but she was she wanted to kind of get on her way but she ended up sleeping longer and the policeman asked if anything anything's wrong and this kind of starts like the 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 run of like her acting just so damn suspicious she's like but she's also like oddly aggressive against the cop like suit way too defensive like yes. such a like you know it's and, and this is the policeman thing kind of confuses me because and maybe it's just because we think of policemen now and how like kind of like the stupid ass shit that they do. And I mean, I guess policemen always, but like it's, it's I'm shocked that the policeman was like, yeah, get out of the car. <laughs> you know, like I get that she's yeah. white, um, but and a, and, a, and a lady and a woman. But like, man, is she acting obvious? Like he's like, he's she's like, am I acting is if there's something wrong, he's like, frankly, yes. Well, no, not even that. I love how he delivers the line because he goes like kind of like laughs and goes, frankly, yes. Yeah, right. Um, but she just keeps insisting. She's like, I'm in a hurry. He asks to see her license. He looks at it, gives it back to her, walks away. And she like immediately drives off and he seems to follow her for a bit. But then I think in the background, you see him go a different direction. But yes. as that kind of happens, the tension, like the music is just kind of like building. And it kind of it continues for a lot of the movie and or a lot of this first act. And she ends up filing, finding this car dealership. It's still daytime. And she attempts to trade her car for another used car, one with California plates. The geography of this movie confuses me. They almost make it seem like she's been like driving all night. But then later, I, I later on, they say the, the, the Bates Motel is 30 minutes away from where like Sam and Lila are. Well, they're in Fairvale, which like is far away because Sam only sees her when he's in town on business. Maybe I, I, I was a little confused. I'm not saying that the, the geography of this film is wrong. I just had a hard time keeping track of it. So it's gotcha. probably on me. But here's like almost my favorite scene in the movie or my favorite character. I love this salesman. Uh, the perfect look uh, name. His name is California Charlie. 
Yeah, pretty good. She waits for the, she waits for California Charlie. She notices the policeman drive past, pull over across the street, and then just lean on his car watching her. Mm-hmm. This is another like reference to voyeurism, but I also just love the policeman's like just getting in her head like this. Yeah. So the salesman approaches, and I'm just gonna read this entire exchange because I love it so much. So he, the first thing it starts, it starts the very first thing he says. I'm in no mood for trouble. What? There's an old saying, first customer of the day is always trouble. But like, but like I say, I'm in no mood for it. So I'm going to treat you fair and square that you won't have one human reason to give me. Can I trade my car in and take another? Do anything you'd have a mind to. Being a woman, you will. <laughs> that yours? Yes. It's just, it's just that. There's nothing wrong with it. I just say the sight of it. Well, why don't you have a look around here and see if there's something that strikes your eye? Meanwhile, I'll have my mechanic give you the once, give yours the once over. You want some coffee? I was just about to. No, thank you. I'm in a hurry. I just want to make a change. And one thing people never ought to be when they're buying used cars, and that's in a hurry. But like I said, it's too nice a day to argue. I'll uh, shoot your car in the garage here. Um, He is like the epitome of like delivering that old kind of dialogue. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Normally, wow. it doesn't work for me in movies, but I fucking love this character so much. Well, I think because like he's also believable, like people like this exist in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I, in, a, in a way that like the oil tycoon might not. Yeah, she is so suspicious this entire scene again. Um, He's like, is anyone chasing you? And she goes, uh, of course not. And I'm not even doing that justice. She like every like every time she's like lying, it sounds like, yeah, I should just believe the exact opposite of what you're saying. Yes. Um, He makes her an offer. She accepts it immediately, which, again, he finds very suspicious. He even notices the policeman across the street and doesn't say anything. That's odd to me. Yeah, I, I thought that was strange, too. I thought it would like give him a reason not to you know, sell her the car yeah. or something, but no. Very odd. I guess just white women could get away with this. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, she asks where the ladies' room is so she can go get the envelope of money that she has and take out the $700 that she needs without being seen. Uh, The policeman then gets in his car and pulls into the dealership and without even acknowledging him as he pulls up again, he doesn't say like, stop right there. Like she gets in the car and tries to leave. And then she stopped because she was leaving so quickly that she forgot her luggage in the other car. So the mechanic stops her, brings her the stuff and she just gets in the car and drives away. No, like, Hey, stop there. or Like anything like that. But yeah. Any, any, anything you want to say about the scene before I move on? No, just I think it's extremely strange that, as you mentioned, the salesman sees the policeman, the policeman pulls up and lets her go. It's very odd, but I like that it kind of like helps with the tension. Yes. Um. So as she drives down the road, she's very worried. Um. This suspenseful, the suspenseful music just continues and we get a bunch of different voiceovers. So we get a voiceover and an exchange between Charlie and the policeman that takes place after she leaves. Which is like, what the hell is going on? Who was that? Um. An exchange between Mr. Lowry and Marion's sister. Mr. Lowry is her boss, I think. Uh, Marion's sister, Lila, talking and wondering where Marion is gone. And then Mr. Lowry and uh, Cassidy, the the oil man or whatever, uh, talking, him suspecting that he stole the money. And one of his voiceover lines is, well, I ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get I'll get it back. And any, if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with their fine, soft flesh. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> Yeah, very strange. How many people Again, do you think that man has killed in his life? Well, he has the he money just, to cover it up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he probably buries them all in like oil wells. Yes, yeah. 
Um, but again, kind of the idea of like men controlling women or violence against women by men. Yeah. Right. So the rain intensifies as she's driving and music is kind of still going and it's very hard to see from the rain and the headlights. And as she continues to drive through the rain, she is able to see a house on a hill and a sign for Bates Motel, which has vacancy. Hooray. Whoa. So she pulls over, heads to the office of the motel. No one's there. She looks up at the house on the hill where the lights are on and kind of in the window with the lights on, she sees a woman walk by the window. Can you know we just mean? park on the house for a moment? Yeah, um, sure, sure. What do you want to say? Yeah. No, just like, how would you describe this house? Like, if you haven't actually seen the movie Psycho, you've probably seen a picture of the house at some point. Yeah. But it's the epitome of like the creep. Don't go in there. Don't go in their house on top of the hill. Yeah. Even the hill is full of like kind of, you know, underbrush and like scraggly plants. Um, It just looks very creepy and uninviting. The windows are lit up oftentimes when we see the house to almost make them look like eyes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So and it's, yeah, it's important that she sees this woman walk by the window. So she gets back in her car and she starts honking until a man suddenly rushes down from the house to help her. And this is Norman Bates. Norman Bates himself. Uh, so Norman tells Marion that they're fully vacant uh, because the main highway was moved away from the motel. Uh, so the motel now is fairly isolated. And if there's anything great for characters in horror movies, it's being isolated. Yeah. Uh, Norman tells her, and I think this is very telling of him, there's no point in dwelling on our losses. We keep turning on the lights and going through all the more, all the formalities. Yeah. And it's essentially what he's doing with his whole life. It's so um, great going back and listening to all these lines, knowing what's going to happen. Yes. So Marion signs a fake name uh, and we find out later. Well, we see it. Now. What was her fake it's, name? Marie Samuels. Oh, not fakey uh, peacock. No, not fakey peacock. But they kind of realize that Mary sounds like Marion and her boyfriend's name is Sam. She's, so, not, <laughs> she's not very good, is she? So she's not even clever. No. Uh, she claims that she's from L.A. Uh, I believe the newspaper she carries with her is, is the L.A. Times. So that gives a little bit of credence to her story. Mm hmm. Um, he gives her the cabin next to the office, tells her, just knock on the wall if you need anything. Uh, if I were her, that's already a red flag. I'd be like, no, thank you. I'll take a private yeah. cabin like yeah. down the way. Um, and he shows her the room, but he seems really reluctant to leave her, um, which, you know, makes sense because he's lonely. Uh, but also there's just kind of bad vibes a little bit starting with him. Am I am I like totally insane then that I I find like him? There's a certain point where. I think the conversation becomes creepy. Whereas I think he's pretty charming, even at this point that you're talking about. Yeah, but you can definitely like, but I'm not a woman. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like the red, like the, the red flags might not have kicked in for me. You definitely get the sense that he like, you know, he tells her later, I bet you've never had an empty moment in your entire life. Like she's obviously a very beautiful kind of, um, Mm bubbly young woman and yeah. he's kind of awkward and stilted and that i that's why i get a vibe but okay. you know like you may not and i do find him a little bit charming yeah yeah what's interesting is that he's embarrassed to even say the word bathroom um and that marion has to say it for him there's a couple times where norman kind of retreats into very like childlike yeah. cadences or language and i think this is one example yeah uh, there's another controversial bathroom thing that'll happen later Yep. Uh, not the murder, actually. <laughs> Something else. Yeah. 
so Norman asked Marion if she would like to have dinner with him at, uh, in his house, uh, and she agrees. So clearly she's not that off put by him. Was it at the house, or were they, were, were they in this room that was part of the motel? Well, so they eventually do eat in the parlor, but originally he asked her to oh, have okay. dinner with him in the house. Right, uh, but yeah, okay, so they don't actually go to the house, right? They right. don't go to the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so Marion hides the money in her newspaper and leaves it on the nightstand. Uh, this is just a note for me, but every time I watch this movie, the way she arranges the money and folds it into the newspaper is like intensely <laughs> mentally pleasing to me. It's like this weird ASMR watching her fold the money. I love it. <laughs> I don't know why. Hmm. Um, so after she's done with that, she is distracted by some yelling coming from the house. Um, an old woman is screaming at Norman that she doesn't want a strange young woman coming over for dinner. She says that Norman's mind is cheap and erotic. Um, so this hmm. is Norman's mother. Interesting choice of words. Yes, exactly. Um, she seems obsessed uh, with the idea of men and sex. She calls it disgusting. Um, and she keeps calling Norman a boy. Um, hmm. She does not call it. Sometimes she calls him Norman, but mainly calls him boy or a boy, not a man. Yeah. So Norman comes down with a dinner on a tray. Yeah. He looks embarrassed and he knows that Marion heard the argument with his mother. He says that she isn't quite herself today. And he even says, like, don't you wish you could apologize for other people? Um, so he's definitely like embarrassed of her. I, yeah. And I, I really like starting here, like the whole parlor scene through the shower scene. I, it, that's the my actual like favorite sequence of the movie. And I think now that that's a very original of most people's, I think. But it's yeah, it's um, the only thing that could have improved it is the presence of California Charlie. <laughs> Just in the corner. <laughs> yeah, there's not. I got to tell you, no California Charlie fan fiction. And it's it's a real shame. Yes. Um, Norman suggests that they eat in the office, uh, which is interesting because he brings the food and they meet right outside Marion's bedroom. Uh, and he does not suggest that they eat there. He specifically says the office. So I think it's interesting that he won't go into Marion's bedroom at this moment. Yeah. Um, or at least Norman won't. Right. Yeah. Um, so they go into the parlor uh, and this is the scene where as a little kid, I kind of started to get afraid because the parlor is filled with taxidermy birds um there's birds everywhere there's an owl with its wings outstretched uh that we kind of get a beautiful shot of with norman sitting in the chair it's kind mm -hmm. of behind him um but lots of birds so as marion starts eating he tells her you eat like a bird uh they start talking about the taxidermy and she's like oh you must know a lot about birds and he says i don't really know anything about birds my hobby is stuffing things mm -hmm. um and so, again, if we think about women, right, I don't know anything about birds. And he, you know, women, I don't really know anything about women. Um, and my hobby is stuffing things, which, again, women, he literally stuffs a woman. Uh, he goes on to say, I only think birds look good stuff because they're passive to begin with. Again, yeah. this is the 60s, 50s. So women, right? Women are supposed to be passive. Mm hmm. Norman begins to tell her about his life um, and basically that there's really not much going on. He kind of tends to the hotel. She's um, like, do you have any friends? He kind of just doesn't answer her. Um, yeah. Besides saying, this is another great line, um, a boy's best friend is his mother. Yeah, one of the most, if not the most famous lines from yes. the movie. Uh, he picks up the fact that she's running away from something because, again, she's being super suspicious. Yeah. Now, this is a theory that I only came up with this time watching the movie. Okay. I was analyzing it a little bit more. 
do you think that Norman or kind of the other part of Norman's mind specifically targets Marion because she's vulnerable, because she's using an alias, she's on the run, and she'll be more likely to never be heard from again? Mm. Or um, do you think it's just a crime of passion? So his kind of lack of intelligence or seeming lack of intelligence, seeming lack of intelligence seems to suggest that it's just a crime of passion that he wouldn't be that smart about it. But maybe he is a lot more intelligent than I realize he is. Well, and I don't even think Norman's the one who's doing this. I think it's this other part of. Well, Norman. right. So maybe he has a more intelligent other like personality. Yeah. Maybe I, I can see it kind of going either way. Now that you mentioned that, do you, so what's your head cannon? Uh, my head cannon is it was a crime of passion. I just think it's interesting to think about. Like, yeah, it is very. May, maybe it's more targeted than. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, so Norman tells her this is another great line. Uh, We're all in our private traps, clamped in them, never able to get out. This is when he really starts emptying his feelings. Yes, because he's very lonely. He doesn't yeah. talk to anyone. Yeah. Uh, he says, I was born in mind and I don't mind it anymore. And then he immediately goes on to say, but <laughs> yes, actually I do. Yeah. Uh, he tells Marion that some days he thinks about telling off his mother and defying her, but he never actually does it. He says that he can't. So this is, uh, this is where I like, I made a note that I, I love the different way that Hitchcock frames Norman in this scene. So at first the camera is kind of like straight on both of them. And then right around at this exact moment when like when she brings up the mean way that his mother talked to him and he responds with that he wishes he could curse her out and leave her um but can't the like the the camera angle changes it's like aimed upward so you can see the taxidermied birds mounted high on the wall and the shadows like on the wall yes it's much more sinister all of a sudden the yes, moment and- she brings up the way his mother talks about it and it's, you know, obvious foreshadowing yeah. uh, to the fate it, of... It's great, yeah. though. It's, it's just a great uh, filmmaking choice. Um, he tells Marion that his mother is sick, um, or ill, rather. And Marion assumes physically ill, but Norman kind of goes on to explain, like, no, she's kind of mentally ill. Um, a man talked her into building the motel um, and apparently died a grisly death. We'll get to that later, um, mm-hmm. but that's what he tells her. So all she has left is Norman. There's another great line. A son is a poor substitute for a lover. Uh, sure is. Yeah, that's really creepy to even think about. Oh, I meant to <laughs> I meant to ask you in, in the in our history, you have seen all of Bates Motel, haven't you? I haven't seen all of it, but I've seen like the first three seasons. Okay. And I adore it. I yeah. think Bates Motel is great. I think you can appreciate it without having seen Psycho, but obviously you will get a lot more out of it. Right. Um, have you seen Bates Motel? No, I haven't. I actually haven't specifically because I feel like it would be agonizing to watch the relationship between Norman and his mom. Isn't that what the whole show is about? I mean, that sounds like brutal. It's it's intense for sure. Um, it's great. I would suggest just kind of watch the pilot and see what you think about it. I do, I do love Vera Farmiga, though. She's, she's, she's incredible. Perfect casting. Um, and Freddie Highmore is, does a great job. He he has that like Anthony Perkins kind of naivety, but he also can kind of turn it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so all you know, all um she has left is Norman, and Norman tells Marion that he hates what she's become. 
Um, so we don't know what he means by that, like physically, literally, or kind of in her head. There's so much suggestive dialogue here, or, or so much like it's like they're the movie's just telling you everything. It's like Midsommar where it just shows you what's going to happen, but you don't realize it. Exactly. So Marion suggests that Norman, she says, put his mother somewhere. And he gets really mad and he kind of says, everyone says put like somewhere means a madhouse, right? Yeah. Um, and he describes a madhouse. He describes the screaming. He describes like kind of the chaos of it. And again, this is my headcanon. But the way Norman describes a madhouse, it sounds like he has spent time in one. Hmm. What do you think? Well, I didn't think of it that way. But why would why would he know these specific details about what madhouses they're like? And why would he get that kind of visceral reaction? I mean, maybe if he is aware of what he's done, then maybe he's afraid of being put in something like that. And he looks at it in the worst possible scenario, which fuels his fear of being sent to one. Possibly. I my headcanon, like I said, is like he has spent time in a madhouse and maybe when his mother was still around, like maybe she committed him for some reason. But Hmm. the the. The vibe I get is that he's describing it from experience. Okay. But that's just me. Um, He goes on to say of his mother, she's harmless, as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Then he says, I like this. I wrote it down just because I like the line itself. But he says, people always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest, oh, so delicately. Yeah. And again, it sounds like he's dealt with this firsthand many times before. It feels like he's dealt with people doing this to him. Yep. Uh, But what I was wondering is uh, they shake their heads and suggest oh so delicately. Suggest what, though? Um, I I just take it as like a catch-all. Like, they, they, like, are trying to be controlling. They're, like, suggesting things when they really mean that they think that that's what the person should do. And it's, mm. it's like his way of his, his mother's probably delicate tone and non-aggressive tone, passive aggressive controlling of Norman's life. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, this is my favorite line in the whole film. It's also a pretty famous line. Yeah, no, if not um, the most famous. If the, if the other one isn't the most famous than this one is. Yeah. Um, she just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? Uh, great. Great line. I love yeah. it. Uh, so after all this, Marion decides to go back to Phoenix. Um, she wants to pull herself out of her private trap, return the money, um, and she even tells him her real last name. So again, I kind of talked about it before, but like, did he target her because she knows she's on the run? Um, but we kind of already talked about that. Yeah. So Marion goes back to her room and Norman spies on her through a hole in the office wall behind a painting. Again, we get that great shot from the Simpsons episode. Um, And he gets kind of a weird look on his face after spying on her, storms out of the office, looks at the house and kind of marches towards it. Does he looking at her as she undresses or no? Or is it right before? I can't. I believe she's already undressed and she's just in her bra and she's preparing to shower. Got it. Yes. So we get the first uh, time we see the inside of the house as Norman goes into the kitchen. We get uh, a cut to Marion who just relaxes with a nice hot shower. Um, And then she towels off and she returns to Phoenix and, um, you know, everything's great. (laughs) Uh, No, 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 no. Uh, This is one of the most famous movie scenes of all time. Ever, 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 ever. Just ever. Yeah. Marion, if listen, if you don't know, Marion gets stabbed to death in the shower. Like, how could you not know? How could you not have like seen this or seen a still of this? 
Um, I'm surprised always at the lack of blood. I assume that it's because of chocolate syrup. Yeah, it was chocolate syrup. Looks quite a bit like blood, though. Yeah. Um, I was I'm surprised because this was rated R. Obviously, this is a graphic film for the time. Um, If she was stabbed like that, she would just be bleeding everywhere. Yeah. I mean, like and even when she like has her hands like or like her face or like whatever, like just you're coughing up blood, probably. I mean, I'm no like murder expert. I just I assume. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we get th- so this was one of the hardest shots in the film, and they had to reshoot many times, which Alfred Hitchcock did not like to do. He did not like doing reshoots. Um, but there is the shot with Marion's unbroken, unblinking eye that just kind of zooms out. Yep. Um, incredible shot. Yes. Yeah. And then from the house, we hear Norman yelling at his mother, "Blood, mother, blood! Uh, what have you done?" Yeah. Norman runs from the house down to Marion's room and he is genuinely, it seems, horrified at what he discovers. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned before, this is not the end of Act One. We it's get, like 10 minutes. Yeah, we get almost 10 minutes of Norman. He's cleaning up the blood. He's getting rid of Marion's body. He puts her in the trunk. He absentmindedly puts the $40,000 in the trunk. Yeah. Uh, doesn't even look at it. Doesn't know what it is. Um, and pushes her car into a pond. I think this is essential, totally essential. Every minute of it, okay. Purely yeah, for mi- tell me it's why misdirection. It's all what it, it's all it is. Like if you spend that much time showing us his reaction, it it is some it is making the audience not suspect him. Yeah, it, 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 I think it works true. really because I think that the last scene was suspicious, right? Like this is throwing us off Norman's scent, and I could imagine, like again, if you if you immediately cut to him, like seeing the body and then you just cut immediately to him dumping it in the lake, the audience is not given enough time, like to process what just happened and will, and could more easily in their mind conflate the murderer, the female, like, you know, silhouette with Norman. Again, it seems a little ridiculous at the time. Again, if you don't know the book or anything like that, but like spending, giving that much time devoted to seeing Norman discovering the body and his reaction to it and cleaning it up, that kind of dispels your suspicions. I yeah okay that makes complete sense to me now. You you flipped me. Okay. Uh, um yeah right. that makes sense. Uh, we also get this kind of cool moment of tension when the car is in the pond and it's sinking, um, and then it stops, and Norman just gets this look on his face like oh fuck. Uh, <laughs> and then after a moment, an, a genuinely tense moment. I've seen this movie many times, and like that still fills me with tension. Like oh yeah. no, like you're not going to get away with it. Yep. Uh, but then the car sinks in and again, like, God, Anthony Perkins, like, just gets this like very slight smile on his face. Uh, it's, it's it's insane. Like he he and he, he's so good in that whole sequence and, and the rest of the movie, too. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, I just love that. Just the little kind of smirk he gets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so this is the end of Act One and the end of Marion Crane. Yeah. So Act Two, I'll I can cover that. So Lila. Marion's sister arrives in Fairvale, uh, Fairville, whatever. Fairvale uh, finds Sam, t- tells him that she's her sister, Marion's sister, and asks where she is. And a man in the window <laughs> looks in very suspiciously and then enters and talks to them. And his name is Arbogast. He is a private investigator who tells them that Marion stole $40,000 and he's been hired to find it. Lila already knows about the money. So Arbogast is convinced that Marion is in town somewhere, and we get this little montage of him asking around various hotels and and coming up empty. Um, So it cuts to Norman sitting on his porch reading, and Arbogast approaches. 
So he mentions that the Bates Motel is the first hotel he's seen, Arbogast that is mentions, uh, that looks like it is hiding from the world. That's a great line. Yeah. Obviously, you know, that's the audience is like, yeah, you're in the right place. <laughs> um, so they go inside and they talk. And I think Norman and initially and like Perkins as Norman is so charming in this scene until it starts to kind of break down under the like the barrage of questioning that Arbogast. And I think also the actor who plays Arbogast is really good at not being aggressive, but being persistent, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's like he's playing the good cop, um, yeah. but he's definitely still a cop. Like he wants to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. So he says he's looking for Mary and he shows a picture. Norman kind of looks and says no one has been here in the last two weeks. He and he he doesn't even want to look at the picture. at first. Yeah, clearly like guilty conscience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so but he accidentally mentions a couple who was there last week and Arbogast catches it immediately, calls him out on it, saying that's not what you said before. You said no one was here in the last two weeks. So Arbogast has to look at the registry book and he notices the name Marie Samuels. Which but, like, dude, come on, you covered everything up and you forgot this. Yeah. Um, and he has a handwriting sample. He's very good at his job uh, and sees that it's the exact same handwriting as Marion. So as tensions rise, the shots become close-ups. Um, they're not close-ups at first, uh, but they become that. And, and, it, and again, it works very, very well to, to, to mirror the increasing tension. And we get even get a close-up of the picture of Marion, which Arbogast offers yet again to Norman as he is clearly becoming more suspicious. Norman then kind of, I don't, it's interesting to think of like what would be going on in Norman's head. Um, but he's like, now, you know, now I remember her. She, she showed up, showed up. She arrived late, went right to bed, left very early the next morning. And Arbogast is like, what morning? And Norman like stutters. Um, so again, we start to see Norman kind of like become more visually nervous and like get some nervous lip movements, a little bit of the stuttering. Um, again, Anthony Perkins, excellent. Yeah, phenomenal. Norman says that Marion made no phone calls. And Arbogast says, if you did, do you spend, spend the night with her or else how, how else would you know that she made no phone calls? And that I was that I was like confused by because was there a phone in the room? I mean, I assume so. But I don't know. yeah, because I was like, wait, is the only phone in the office? Like, I didn't get it. It might, it might be. I mean, she could maybe she would have access to it. I don't know. Yeah. But Norman's like, I made her a sandwich. She said she was tired, went right to bed. And Arbogast is like, this shit ain't adding up. <laughs> So Norman's like, you know what? Come with me. Come check the rooms. And he's like, all right, I will. So an Arbogast, like he notices the house on the hill and he sees a woman in the window. Again, important for, you know, deceiving the audience uh, to see that. And he asks Norman if someone is home. And Norman says no, but then corrects himself and says it's his mother. But I love that he says no. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and then, well, horror, like horrifically, he's like, well, she's an invalid. So it doesn't really <laughs> Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, um, and he said, "I'm not capable of being fooled by a woman." No, oh, really. Uh, about Marion, uh, Norman says. So, I mean, Norman, but Norman mentions again. He keeps slipping up. He said, "Marion met his mother." Arbogast keeps bombarding him with questions, and Norman is like, "You know what? You need to leave." Uh, which obviously super suspicious. But then again, I'm like, I'm like feeling for Norman in this situation. It's like, man, just shut the fuck up. I hope I'm never questioned. But then again, I'm never, I'm not going to be guilty of anything. So if I get questioned, I'll just be annoyed, but it's not like they can break me and find out something I did. Cause I ha won't have done anything. Yeah. Well, and two, it's important to remember that at this moment, like, you know, if you are seeing the movie for the first time, like Norman is covering for his mother here, right? right. He's not covering for himself. Right. Right. And so Arbogast 
gets in his car, drives away. He goes to a phone booth and calls Lyle. I think it's nighttime now. And he tells her, Marion came to the Bates Motel, stayed in room one. This is important because Lila comes back there later. And Arbogast tells Lila that he isn't totally satisfied with what he kind of discovered at the Bates Motel. And so he wants to question Norman's mother. So he says, I'll meet with you and Sam at Sam's house in an hour. So, again, very close to where they are. Um, So Arbogast goes back to the motel. And we get a shot of Norman kind of in the distance at night walking around, seemingly kind of like nervous. He I think he looks over his shoulder, maybe. And he walks into the motel, and that's another very voyeuristic shot there. Yeah. But obviously, you know, Arbogast is kind of, you know, he's trying to sneak around. So Arbogast pulls up, walks into the motel, asks for Norman, sees like the stuffed burns, uh, stuffed birds, and an open safe in Norman's parlor. Now, I don't recall the safe. What's the significance of the safe? Um, so there is none. I, I don't understand why it's just a red herring. Open. It's yeah, it's a red herring. Okay. And so Arbogast enters Norman's house. He goes up there and he starts looking around and he begins to walk up the stairs very slowly. The music changes a little bit. Again, kind of ominous. There's a shot of the bottom of a door opening up. I don't think it's clear where that door is until in a moment. And now this is, I was so much more impressed with this shot than even the shower scene. Like this was one of like the, probably the most fun I had in the movie, and I, re- I rewound it a couple times. There's this top down shot, which is just I, I, it's it's incredible, of a woman coming out of the doorway on the right side of the frame, walking up to Arbogast, who's now kind of reached the, almost the top of the stairs, and starts stabbing him. The music kicks in right before she comes out of the room, and she kind of just like briskly walks over. Yeah, she's like on the move. I think this is terrifying. Like I was, I, I legitimately creeped out by this, whereas I wasn't by the shower scene. Maybe because well, I've seen the shower scene so many times. I think that's part of it. I also think like the shower scene, you don't really see it coming in the same way because it's just the <clears throat> like pullback of the curtain reveal. Yeah. Whereas this, you almost get like two full seconds of like, oh no, oh no, oh no, she's coming. Yeah. You know I mean, but just the way that it's framed, like it's it's so creepy i i like it's just incredible so he stumbles backwards down the stairs which we'll talk about that in a second um and then she follows him down to the bottom of the stairs and starts stabbing him again yeah i was confused later in the film why there wasn't like a giant blood stain or something on the ground yeah, but, right um but yeah tell us about this shot because it's, so, it's kind of crazy it's so weird i don't know how the hell hitchcock did this uh and again i could have looked this up but i think it's more fun to just be like how did he do it it's crazy. Um, it, it is kind of incredible, but it's also extremely silly. And I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I love the shot of like him getting stabbed the first time. But as he's falling back down the stairs, it's like the camera is strapped to him. And he's like, what's it like, like comic falling, like, <laughs> like backwards down the stairs, which doesn't make any sense. I think physically, like you would have just fallen and rolled. Like you're yeah. not just like you can't go backwards down the stairs falling backwards. Like gravity would take you down. Yeah, it would make you fall. Um, So it's a little silly and I, I don't know. It's weird. It's almost like one of the things that maybe doesn't work about it because it kind of takes away from the horror. But like what what, you know, the, the follow up stabbing and then the initial stabbing are so well done that this sandwich in between almost it kind of like doesn't really matter. I, I think it's fine. I like it. OK, Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know how he did it either because green screen didn't exist. now, Right. Right. 
Yeah. Um, and, and you have you have the like the downstairs part of the house like kind of rushing up at you as he's well. Falling. It green screen doesn't exist, but I mean, if you think about a lot of the way that car scenes were filmed back in the day, right? Like they had a projector uh, screen in the back and then, maybe, maybe that's how they did it. Maybe they had the camera like zoom, like, like they had someone take the camera and walk down the stairs and they projected that behind him. And then he just like stood in front of it, just going, Whoa. just waving his arms. Yeah, actually that may be how they did it. Maybe. Yeah. But that was all just that, that tiny Arbogast chunk. That's, that's act two. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so it's dead. so short. Uh, so now Lila and Sam are suspicious and worried because he said, "I'll be there in an hour or even less." Uh, and one of them mentions that it's been like three hours. Um, so they decide to go looking after Arbogast, but Sam makes Lila wait back at the shop. Uh, so Sam shows up at Bates Motel and just starts yelling, "Arbogast, Arbogast!" <laughs> <laughs> like outside, just into the elements. Yeah. Uh, so, like, not the best plan. Uh, he doesn't find anything. So Sam returns to Lila, and they decide to go to the local sheriff. Uh, also, it's kind of the middle of the night. So uh, they go to the sheriff, and uh, they bring up Mrs. Bates, right? That Mrs. Bates may have talked to Marion, and that she may know where Marion is. Yeah. Uh, the sheriff's wife is excited to hear Mrs. Bates, thinking that Norman has gotten a wife. Um, and Lila explains, like, no, 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 I'm talking about his mother. So the wife of the sheriff shares kind of confused glances with her husband. Um, and we'll kind of find out why in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mentioned that there was bad business out at Bates Motel about 10 years ago. So the sheriff decides to give Norman a call. Um, and Norman gives the same cover story to the sheriff that Arbogast does. Um, he, the sheriff doesn't seem overly suspicious of him and kind of accepts his story. Uh, The sheriff then kind of goes on to say that the bad business 10 years ago uh, was that Norman's mother has been dead in a (gasps) murder-suicide. She, yes, gasp. Uh, She poisoned the man, uh, and they don't make it clear, but it's presumably the man who talked her into buying the motel. Um, So she killed him with poison and then killed herself, leaving Norman all alone. And he was the one who found them in bed together. Um, but Sam is still convinced that he saw an old woman in the window and that Arbogast did too. So who could it be? Uh, and the sheriff even mentions like, hey, if Norman Bates's mother is at the hotel, then who did we bury? So back at the motel, Norman runs into the house to talk to his mother. Uh, and Norman asks her to hide in the fruit cellar, which she becomes outraged. She does not want to do that. Norman tries to explain the danger to her, like, hey, people are looking for you. You need to go hide. And she mentions, you hid me there once, boy, and you won't ever do that to me again. Norman tells her, like, hey, fuck it, I can carry you, uh, and carries her to the basement, much to her chagrin. So then we get Sam and Lila meeting up with the sheriff outside church. They, like, don't want to leave this guy alone. (laughs) He tells them that he went to the motel earlier in the morning to check things out. Uh, He tells them that Norman's story is the same as Arbogast, just like last night, and that there's no mother in the house, just Norman. So he looked in the house and he did not find it. Um, But Lila especially is kind of unconvinced um, and decides to go with Sam to check out the motel on her own. She has like some pretty great women's intuition. She just is not taking no for an answer. Yeah. Um, so Sam makes up an excuse. Oh, so they go into the base motel and they, they're going to claim that they're a married couple. 
So Sam makes an, up an excuse to see the registration book. Um, Norman's like, no, you don't need to register. And Sam's like, no, my boss wants me to and to get receipts. Um, however, Norman has actually covered his tracks and there is no Marie Samuels. Mm-hmm. This is another weird 1950s thing that I don't understand. Um, Norman asks to take their bags, but Sam tells him there aren't any. So two things. One, immediately Norman is suspicious. because As he should married, be. As he should be. Because if they're a married couple traveling that long of a way, they should have bags. But the other thing, the 1950s thing I don't understand is when he's like, well, if you don't have bags, you have to pay me $10. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? why? I don't get that. Yeah. But who knows? Um, so Lila is suspicious that Norman may have done something to Marion for the $40,000. Her belief is that he was doing it to like buy his way out of this dying motel. Yeah. Um, which would be a good person, like a good motive for a normal person, but not a good motive for a psycho. Uh-huh. Yeah. Lila reasons, and I think this is clever of Lila. Lila reasons that whether he found something or not, Arbogast would have called them. He would have contacted them. So the fact that he hasn't is kind of proof that he did find something yeah. and was stopped. So I would I immediately like that- have assumed that he was dead. The fact that he's like, I'll be there in an hour and I haven't heard from him in over like 24 hours. Be like, yeah, he's dead now. Yeah, but it's I like how she connects those dots. Yeah. Um, so they search cabin one uh, and Lila finds the ripped up expense figures in the toilet. I don't know if you mentioned this earlier when Marion rips up the expense figures. Oh, no, I but didn't. This is the first time that a toilet had been featured on screen in a major motion picture. Because that is where people poop and poop is gross. Yeah, and poop is gross, and we're not going to have that in a movie, but yeah. Hitchcock was like, guess what, 1950s and 60s. Poop is films. real, and guess who does it? Women. Yes. Yeah, Jen and Lee poops. Yes. Um, so on the paper, Lila can see that Marion has subtracted a figure from 40000 Um, So it kind of proves that she was there and that she had the money. So they split up. Sam's will take Norman while Lila goes to his mother. So as Sam talks to Norman, um, he tells him, you're alone here, aren't you? Um, That would drive me crazy. And Norman says, I think that would be a rather extreme reaction. Wouldn't you? Uh, And Sam says, well, it's just an expression, (laughs) right? But a little foreshadow. So Lila goes into the house and she's looking for Mrs. Bates. Obviously, she can't find her because she's not there at the time. She's in the fruit cellar. Um, However, her room looks lived in. Yeah. There's a burned out fire in the fireplace. There's a ridiculously cartoonish body impression in the bed. May- oh, my God. <laughs> like, ridiculous. Like, it's as if she gets crane lifted out of bed every morning so as to <laughs> yes. not disturb the imprint. <laughs> it is like she is sleeping on the world's largest marshmallow. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. They, I mean, they're doing a really good job of, like, maintaining this uh, facade. Or the, yes. the filmmakers, you know. Um, but yeah, so she goes into Norman's childhood room, uh, which is still there, unchanged, still has toys and still has like little kid wallpaper, which is creepy. We cut back to Sam, who is continuing to grill Norman. Um, and Sam and Norman have like a fight, I guess. They grapple and then Norman just knocks Sam over the head with something. So is it because Sam snuck into the parlor, right? And then Norman like shows up and they like fight. I I forgot. I I can't remember. And I literally I watched the movie this week and then I literally watched the movie this morning and I can't remember. <laughs> um, but like something they grapple and Norman knocks him over the head yeah. and runs towards the house. 
Um, so Lila sees Norman running up to the house and she hides in slash decides to search the basement. Um, and she finds dun 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 Mrs. Bates uh, turned she, around, turned around very importantly. Yeah. So she starts talking to her and the chair turns around and we see that Mrs. Bates is actually a desiccated mummy skeleton. Pretty um, fucking terrifying, even for 1960. Pretty terrifying. I love how she turns, screams and bats the light bulb. Yeah. Um, so the light bulb goes flying. We get this crazy shots of shadows. Oh, so light. great. Um, and we get Norman coming in dressed as his mother with a knife shrieking i'm norma bates do you um, like that that he says that yes because we'll get to something later that i hate okay um, i think so we might I, hate the same thing yeah so i'm fine with him screaming i'm norma bates here um however before he can get to lila um sam comes in and disarms him yep um and then the screen kind of fades to black and we get uh like the not the like the denim like this was the climax yeah now we're kind of getting the we got like five more minutes left yeah Yeah. so this is a i will say in terms of like plot and information this is a super packed five minutes yeah Uh, so take it away uh, i hate it i actually i hate it i I really hate it it. is it is by far my least favorite thing of the movie i I like the final norman's mother talking to him thing i hate the the psychiatrist lecturing everyone i fucking hate it it is so deflating all like the excitement that i felt leading up even seeing this movie before immediately just got sucked out of me by this stupid scene the Um, only thing i would keep from this is him mentioning that it was probably norman who murdered his mother and lover yes that's the only thing i'd keep ambiguity is is key here and they do the opposite they beat you over the head with expository dialogue explaining and this is it also feels kind of of a time like audiences need this explained and spoon fed to them. Like ambiguity is not okay. Like that people would have been mad if they didn't have it exactly explained to them. And it's almost like this kind of like misguided assumption that explaining it would actually make it scarier, which it doesn't at all. Um, And granted we have the benefit of many, 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 many more decades of horror movies to pull from. But I, but it doesn't matter. Going back, I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to judge it of the time. Now it's rough. It's a rough scene. It sucks. It's the worst part of the movie by far. And that's why I'm okay with him shrieking, I'm Norma Bates. Because if you excise right. everything here, right. you would yeah. have enough dots to connect and be like, even like the slower members of the audience, I think with him shrieking, mm-hmm. I'm Norma Bates dressed like her would be like, oh, okay. Yeah. So the psychiatrist walks into the room and everyone's kind of present there. And he's like, I've got the whole story, uh, not from Norman, but from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now the other half has taken over. Ha ha, dun dun dun. Whoa. But like, he's always said, Norman killed Marion. He killed Arbogast. There were at least two other women killed. Says that 10 years ago, Norman murdered his mother and her lover. Says her mother was a clinging, demanding woman that Norman felt neglected. And he says, matricide is probably the most unbearable crime of all. Disagree. Yeah, I don't think so. Strongly disagree. I think like killing babies is probably pretty rough. Yeah. And also kind of like killing a bunch of women, maybe like mass killing. I'd say so. So but he said Norman had to erase the crime in his own mind. And so what he, he stole the corpse, treated it as if she was alive, speaking for her. 
taking he took, he took on a split personality. The mother took over initially, or like or would completely take over at certain times, and might now have taken over completely. And he says that when Marion appeared, Norman was infatuated, and then the mother personality took over and killed her because she was jealous. Someone's just like, so is he a transvestite? He's like, no, he just wanted to keep up the illusion of his mother being alive. That is way too much fucking information. And also, you could put a lot of that together if you think yes. about it a little bit. Yes. Like, it's not hard. Um, again, we have the benefit of seeing a lot of movies do split personality stuff and and kooky murderers. But like, still, give your audience some fucking credit, you know? Yeah. So... Cop walks in, kind of interrupts this nonsense, and I don't. The rest of the movie, I don't. I don't mind at all. Um, which is only like two more minutes or one more minute. And cop, so he says, Norman's chilly. Asks if he could bring him a blanket. So he gives him a blanket. And so Norman is then sitting there in a cell, um, it wrapped in this blanket as his mother is talking to him in voiceover. So this voiceover used three different voice, or actually throughout the entire movie, there are three different voice actresses used for Norman's mother. And their voices were actually used interchangeably, except for this final speech, which was all one actor at one particular actress. So mother is talking to him. And again, this is just Norman. Just initially, he just kind of looks worried. And then I'll explain his facial expression changes a little bit. So mother's like, you know, you'll be put in jail and that you're a bad boy for telling the police that that I killed all these women. Um, She sees a fly on Norman's hand says, like, I'm not going to swat it because I wouldn't hurt a fly. They'll see and they'll know. They'll say she wouldn't harm a fly. And as she says that, he gets this like evil grin on his face. Just brilliant. Yes. Um, and then as the fame the frame fades to the final shot of the car being dragged out of the mud, Marion's car, we very, 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 very briefly see kind of like the mummified skeleton skull overlaid over Norman's grinning face. It's really yes. quick, it's really subtle, it's excellent. I often find fades like that to be a little bit cheesy, but here I think it works. Agreed and agreed. Totally works here. Yeah. 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 So that was Psycho, everybody. Yeah. And speaking of what works, I would say nearly everything. Uh, The tension is great. Like nearly everything except the stupid ending. Yeah. Except the stupid ending. Again, I laid out kind of my nitpicks here and there. Yeah. Um, I will say what works is God. Also, we need to mention the music and the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, It's gripping. It, it ratchets up the tension in amazing ways. Um, The music can't go understated. It's definitely part of like the vehicle that drives a lot of the tension. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Yeah. Anthony Perkins. Um, Sorry. I completely stole your turn from you. Oh, no, uh, I mean, no, no. I mean, I, I just kind of summed up my likes and dislikes in like one sentence, just like everything works, especially <laughs> except the last scene. I mean, Anthony, per- Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, like they're all the great California Charlie, obviously shout out to the man himself. <laughs> um, Yeah. So uh, let's explore the world of this movie. Um, If we were going to make Psycho the video game, how would you make it? <laughs> um, So this was really tough. I'm going to go with a psychiatrist sim, like a horror oh, sim. Like you, you are just like, it's like the same perspective the entire time. Like you just sitting on your chair, looking at like Norman on a couch. And he's like, like Norman seeing a psychiatrist throughout the events of the film. And slowly you start to see the mother personality emerging. And I feel like that could be a pretty scary, like short experience. I like that. 
Um, when you? we get to what you've been doing this week, you had a short horror experience. I right? sure did. Uh, but also, oh. oh yeah, the the like the era. I feel like this would be a great like mid '90s or early '90s PC game. I was gonna say PC for sure. Yeah. Um. So I had a motel management sim. <laughs> oh, that's great! I can't believe I didn't think of that. That's brilliant. Um, where, but here's the catch. That's you amazing. Have, oh my God. I love that. So you have to balance like hosting real guests and making money with also murdering some of them and, and disposing like, of the bodies, and disposing of the body and like hiding it from the other guests. And you can't, yeah, you have to like bury bodies. You have to like use some lime or whatever it is. Like you can't yeah. like let it smell and disturb the guests. Like the then they'll leave and you, only, yeah. The pond can only fit so many bodies. So you have to like, yeah. find other places. It's like roller coaster tycoon, except <laughs> like the people don't get upset because of the rise and lack of food or whatever. Like they get upset because the the place smells and isn't like the bedding isn't good. And that's exactly it. Th- yes. That's incredible. I love that idea. Um, I like that when, so this is my other idea. When you save up enough money, the end game is that the last customer is Marion Crane. And if you successfully cover up her murder, you win. That's great. Yeah. So that oh, would be my game. That's so great. Yeah. Um, do we want to live in the world of Psycho? Do we arguably already? I was going to say we kind of do. <laughs> so I'm going to say I guess I have to. I, yeah, I guess. We I mean, do. I don't want to. I'd like the world to be full of less murderers. But alas. Alas. Alas, alack. Oh, lamentable day. <laughs> yep. Um, fan fiction corner was weird. Uh, this obviously because, there's tons of porno stuff. Yes, we don't need to get into that. We should mention there's just tons of stuff in general. I mean, this movie there is really so, is so famous. Mm-hmm. Like, how and, could there not? And there are tons of sequels and the Bates Motel show. Like, there's a lot of stuff to sift through. Yeah, we didn't mention it before, but like Psycho is a franchise. Like, there's Psycho two, three, four. Mm-hmm. I think there's Psycho five. I've never seen any of them. Um, I do believe I that An- I do believe that Anthony Perkins comes back I think and directs like a- one of them too. Really? Yeah. Okay. He came back at like one through three or maybe one through four. Huh. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Um. So what did you find? Um. I honestly, there's like the, the generalities I mentioned about like porno stuff and just like some of them like just retelling the story. The one I found most interesting was called Psycho Poems by Hobbit oh, for Life. Okay. With obviously life spelled L-Y-F-E. Of course. These poems are about my memories of watching the Psycho movies and the remake of the first movie. (laughs) Uh, There's literally a poem for Psycho, Psycho 2, Psycho 3, Psycho 4, The Beginning, The Remake, and The Bates Motel TV Show. I'm not going to read all of them, but tell me if you think this is real poetry. I'm going to read just an excerpt. It was 10th grade year, October, sitting in my TV productions class. Mr. Chasey's class when... I saw it. Lauren, one of my best friends since first grade, sat to my right. What were we supposed to learn from Psycho? I still don't know. How the principal approved Psycho? Or if the principal approved Psycho? I still don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. And yet, the crazy old man still shows the movie. At first, Chasey couldn't find the old VHS tape. First checking our classroom, then his office. Finally, he found it in his other room. Nobody really wanted to watch. Not at first. Especially not me, I'll admit. I didn't pay really pay much attention at first, coloring a composition book, until Marion came to the motel. Norman caught my attention. The shower was so familiar, not just parodies, but I'd realized I'd seen it before, sort of. Hey, so is that where they got the shower part in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And we all noticed something. What? 
But Nick said it. Yeah, right. That wasn't a chick stabbing Marion. My classmates and I enjoyed yelling at the TV. I'm, I'm like trying to read this because it's like there were some like they were like separate lines. This, this makes liberal use of spaces of like putting things on the next line that I don't think really amounts to poetry. Like it just sounds my like classmates and I is on a separate line than enjoyed enjoyed is by itself. And then the next line is yelling at the TV comma. Like it's, it's just, it's weird. Yeah. That is strange. Anyway, that goes on for a while, uh, a little bit more. Uh, they do mention the Sims two expansion packs. I don't remember why. Okay. I they start talking it. about like going to like someone's house afterwards. Like it's, it's weird. They had Arby's, wow. you know, it's great. Um, all right. Do you have anything else? No, I, I thought that was really the only thing worth mentioning. Yeah, I um I went a different route just because there was like so 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 much. Um, part of there being so much is that there were a lot of, as you mentioned, poems and songs. Um, so I found two songs. Oh, would you like me to read them? Yeah, I did not expect that. Yeah, so this one is called "Hey Norman." <clears throat> <laughs> is it "Hey Norman"? You're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey Norman. <laughs> no, but it, it should be. <laughs> um, hey Norman, I like the things you do. Hey, Norman, if I could, I'd be with you. You're the one and only psycho with the one and only mob. You know how to take the people and make them all die. Norman <laughs> Bates, he's more than good. He's great. Uh, That's one. Uh, the other one I found uh, is called The Ballad of Norman Bates. Uh, it's very long. I'll just read the ending. Okay. My son, oh, my son, my darling, dear son. Losing his mind over a dirty whore. Fight it, Norman. Please fight it, dear. Always remember that I'm standing right here. That sick little tramp just came out of the blue to take away my darling boy. I've got to fight back. I've got to make sure that my sunny boy knows he's in love with a whore. A story of love and a story of pain. You're going to remember my face and my name. Mother's got her knife. She's holding it tight. She's going to fight for her son tonight. As far as she knows, and a mother knows best, that little tramp must be put to rest. <laughs> so mother crept in just out of the blue and looked at the whore who stole the eyes of her boy. Oh. Stabbing and stabbing, knifing and knifing, a boy's best friend is his mother indeed. Um, so okay. here's the author's note. The author's note is I I've only seen the shower scene and got so obsessed with it, I decided to write this. What? They've only seen the shower scene. That's actually very disturbing. That's like a killer's manifesto right there. That is. Uh, if you are interested, uh, it is by Sam Sonic, 1991. And no Sonic crossover from the from Sam Sonic? No, unfortunately. Very no. disappointing. Uh, I did look for um, fan fiction crossover with Bates Motel. Uh, and there were a few that were quite strange, but the one that I like couldn't figure out how to read or get to, even though I think it exists, is Pirates of the Caribbean Psycho crossover, okay. which like sign me up. How is that happening? I can't even imagine it. I don't know. Um, what would your fan fiction be? I first of all, I think this does warrant fan fiction. I think like the idea of Norman being at Bates Motel, like you could have a lot of stories about like other people staying there. Yeah, but wouldn't that get old? I'm not sure I need the fan fiction unless it's like a side story about California Charlie. Well, that that's your fan fiction. There you go. I want California Charlie to like go visit the Bates Motel with his wife. And then Norman tries to kill his wife and California Charlie kills Norman. I like that. 
Um, I could see fan fiction of like the story of Norman and his mother and his mother's lover. Um, we get just a couple details, but like, I think you could flesh that out. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that was psycho guys. That was psycho. We did uh, it. What have you been up to? Well, as I mentioned to you, I have Barbenheimered. You I've have seen Barbenheimer. Barbie and Oppenheimer. I enjoyed um, both quite a bit. I think I sent this to you, um, but I saw a meme that said in uh, years ago, both The Dark Knight yeah. and Mamma Mia came out. Yeah. And why did we not call it The Dark Mama? I know, right? Yeah, because Bar- yeah. Barbenheimer is phenomenal, but The Dark Mama is pretty great. It is pretty great. Um, I actually I went so I went in assuming I would like Barbie more because I'm like. I love Greta Gerwig and I'm like, I just want the best for her and I want her to have all the success in the world. And I loved Lady Bird. I loved Little Women. Um, Barbie was wonderful. I ended up liking Oppenheimer more though. Not that it's a competition. They're vastly different movies. I have kind of been in like a negative on um, Nolan recently. Um, I did not like Tenet at all. And I thought Dunkirk was very impressive I was just I'm, I I kind of just didn't want Nolan doing real life shit anymore. I liked like the his original like work like stories in, in in Interstellar and Inception. That said, Oppenheimer is a three hour biopic that I really enjoyed for about like two hours and two and a half hours, two hours forty minutes. Like it's like riveting. Um, it is a little too long. I don't really have a desire to rewatch it, but it was really, really good. I I liked it a lot. Barbie though, shorter, hilarious. Can't wait to watch it again. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I just think Barbenheimer is great because these two movies like could not be less like each other. I know. Right. It's great. Um, video game wise has been continuing playing final fantasy 16. I like just binged, uh, Castlevania Aria of Sorrow. It's still great. Just truly great game. And I don't want to say much about it in case you end up playing it and end up wanting to do it for the show. It'd be a pretty easy episode to do such a short game, but I bought that $2 fishing vacation game. And I'll just say it's not about just a fishing vacation. And that's it. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so what have I been doing? Edgar and I have been continuing to watch Yellow Jackets, uh, which is great. Um, video game wise, I've been playing Pokemon Scarlet, uh, or I'm sorry, Pokemon Violet still. Um, also though, uh, I've been getting back into Dragon Quest Eight. Oh yeah, um, I did that too, very briefly. Yeah, I've been getting back into that. Um, it's kind of nice because I will bring my Switch places, but a lot of places like I don't like bringing my Switch, like in the car, different things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas my 3DS, because it's so tiny, I can kind of bring it wherever. Um, yeah. so I've been just like grinding and stuff. Yeah. And like riding before bed and just enjoying Dragon Quest VIII, um, which is just a charming, wonderful JRPG. Yeah. Um, it's making me reevaluate like which one I think is the best starting point for the series. And now I've firmly decided that eight is. Okay. Some be- so I've, I've been like reading more about this and some people are saying that three is the best. No, I would say five, eight or 11. Okay. Yeah. 11 is just so long. I don't know if I'm ever going to play it. It's good, though. It's really daunting. I don't want to be a Grinch about it, but... I, you know, sometimes you have to be. Sometimes you have to be. Um, well, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Now go out there, you little psychos. 